the network for the AV industry. What are you listening to? This. This is AV. This. This. This is AV Nation. This is AV Nation. This is EdTech, episode number two, recorded Tuesday, February 21st, 2012. Some days, you need to fight for your meat. It's time for EdTech, the AV Nation look into the world of education AV. I'm your host, Tim Albright. With us uh, this month is our, our returning guest, uh, Scott Tyner. He is the Assistant Director of User Services at Bates College. Hello, sir. Hi. And also with us is Matthew Silverman. He's the Project Manager, Learning Space Design. How are you? Doing well, thank you. And we have a special guest this this month, uh, live from Anaheim, California. It is Tim Schneibel, the Director of Education Programs at Extron Electronics. Hello. Hey, Tim, and it's Schnabel. It's good to be here. Schnabel. Thank you. From here in the shadow of the mouse next Schnabel. to Disneyland. Schnabel. Okay. I'll have to make a move. Schnabel. 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 You said it. Schnabel. All right. Schnabel. All right. Uh, this month we're going to talk about uh, Epson, uh, Extron, and their education portal, um, and uh, X- Infocom Step, uh, emergency, emergency notification, um, and why 3D won't work ever. Uh, I'm not saying that Roger Ebert is through someone else. But uh, first we're going to talk about video conferencing security and this is something that came to us by way of the new york times which is interesting to me uh because it's the new york times it's not really something that they delve much into usually is is av in the world of of stuff like that but um this came to to them uh out of san francisco it was a security company that basically (laughs) bounced around different video conferencing systems around the country and controlled their vcs and this is, you know, in, in an age where, you know, you have two disparate sort of, of setups. You have either a Skype setup in, in you know, your lab or, or your classroom or whatever, or you've got, you know, a $20,000, $30,000 um, Polycom system or Cisco system in your, in your boardroom or this or a fancy classroom. And, and Matt, we'll start with you on this. And, and when it comes to security, is this something that, you know what? We're you know we're we're all education guys. We have to to watch out for this. Or um, because the article said it was simple stuff like you know default passwords and things of that nature. Is it something that you know what we're 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 smart enough to where we're already doing what the security guy says we should do? Well, my first hope is I, I think I hope we're smart enough to already be doing <laughs> what they say we should be doing. Um, it reminds me of the early days of uh, Wi-Fi when you used to have unsecured access points and uh, default passwords. And I know a hobby of mine was to uh, encourage people to secure their access points by changing their passwords. Um, it, it's something we really should be doing and planning into all of our models. You're putting something on a network, it needs to be secure. And it's not just video conferencing. I mean, think about your control systems. Even though they use proprietary protocols, if you end up hosting web... Uh, web pages on the processor, uh, you need to make sure they're secure or, you know, do you want a student taking over uh, your AV system while a class is going on? No, you don't. No, Scott, is this something you guys have to deal with in, in up in Bates College where, you know what, it's, it, it, it like Matt says, it's not just the VC, but it's also, you know, the control systems. You know, we haven't fortunately had to deal with it. Uh, I, I find it funny because I, I think that uh, it'd be a great reason for explaining why technology is not working. We could just say from now on, well, clearly somebody's hacked into it. So, <laughs> uh, or, or we could just start calling our VC systems live webcams for the internet. Yes. One, yeah. Exactly. I mean, it's just you just spin it right. Um, it, I think it's, it's a, a feature, not a bug. <laughs> and I think it's I think it's important. I think it's funny because for so long, you know, the the IT and AV people had these arguments. I remember hearing from AV people, oh. Our IT guys won't let us put anything on the network, and you know it's just 
a processor or it's just – and I think that now we're starting to learn that this is why there's a partnership. This is why these two organizations have started to merge is that um, you know, these are some things that maybe in AV we're not used to, but IT – is is well aware of these things and you know can help us help us make sure that we're not um, letting people into our our systems. Tim, you guys, you actually, you, you the Xtron was one of my first forays into into control with with the um, with the boxes that you know good lord five six years ago where you know it was all IP based and I had some of the same <laughs> my, my IT guys had some of the same concerns. How have you guys it, it kind of treaded these waters when it comes to security and stuff? Well, I mean, answering the, I'll come to that question in a second, but the you know, first question from a corporate standpoint and a video conference system, you have the, the one side, the convenience of Skype, which I use quite a bit for customer discussions and just you know, reviewing designs, doing some training, th- things of that nature. But from a corporate standpoint, doing you know, global communications with our remote offices, uh, you know, I'm doing an interview tomorrow with a, a potential candidate. Those need to be secure. Um, and then dialing in a, we call a video conference system, was working with a design yesterday morning with a college in Pennsylvania, and you're dealing with control standards and options of controlling the video conference system via RS-232 or Ethernet. And you could shave a few milliseconds off going Ethernet, but that caused, leading into your next question, potentially if you use Ethernet, to have that outside contact on the IP address for the video conference system being able to tunnel into the, the AV system. So IT needs to employ some you know, firewall protection, um, do some standards in place to help put a barrier between the outside world or the student side of things and the control system AV network. So let me ask you guys this, and, and Matt, we'll come back to you on this because you're, you're, you come from the world of IT. Is it possible then to create your own, I guess the best way to put this, is your, your own AV network um, where, and, and forgive me because I don't know how to transverse firewalls and you know uh, VLANs and all that jazz. I know it's possible. I just don't know the ins and outs. Is it, is it more, is it? Is it, are we to the point where we need to create our own networks and then kind of our own little walled garden and then have an access point to the rest of the world? We actually did that at George Mason two or three years ago. So it, it's not only possible, it's actually already in place at a lot of, a lot of universities. And where we end, ended up implementing at George Mason is we put all of our audiovisual devices in a private IP VLAN. So it's only routable within the George Mason environment. It's actually by how IP works. It's in the 10 dot space. It's not routable outside our edge routers. And so because of that, everything we have is inherently secure by design and it's only accessible on campus and then only on specific networks on campus. Our video conferencing people have actually worked with our network group to do a similar design for their space because they have different roles. it's something I I think we as an industry have to find a conversational language. And I know the barrier that I had when I started approaching uh, our network group is I really had to stop trying to give them technical requirements and give them more functional requirements. And Mm -hmm. when I gave them, I said, I need a network which does X, Y, and Z, they really presented a great solution for us. Wow. So you guys have a good solution, working solution, but you 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 worked you you worked hand in hand with with the IT guys. So absolutely, I think that's kind of one thing here. And, and I'm also curious, and, and I don't know how much you guys know about AVB. I'm wondering if maybe that uh, is something that maybe we can start moving that into too as well, because uh, one of the guys we have on on AV Week, Bradford Ben, uh, works for Harmon, and they're they're a big big uh, proponent, and, and and they have their hands a lot in, in AVB. Um, which is an audio and video um, protocol over over twisted pair. So, all right. Um, this comes to us from Ray Publications. Epson uh, introduced a new line of seven to ten k lumens projectors uh, with some edge blending, and uh, I, I don't I don't um, bring this up because it's a wonderfully written um, press release. Because I don't much <laughs> care for press releases, but it's it's to kind of say, okay, guys, I, I am a big fan of Epson. There are a number of companies that I think cater to education. 
well, uh, both from a price point perspective and from a spec perspective. Um, Scott, we'll, we'll start with you on this one. How do you how do you spec a, a projector? What do you look for? Are you are you like this is the kind, this is the kind of house we are? We are a Sanyo house. Well, not Sanyo anymore. Are you, we're, we're a Panasonic house. Um, we're a Christie house. Or, or do you simply go every year say, you know what, I got this much money, and I need to have you know four five thousand lumens and an HDMI connector. Beyond that, I don't care. Uh, a, a little, a little bit of both. We we're a relationships kind of college, and so we we use NEC. Let's let's say, uh, and we have a relationship with them, and so um, we work on that relationship uh, both for support needs, for for costs and pricing, for training, and so when we look at something, we look at that product. Um, you know, specs matter, but for us in a classroom, you know, we're looking, like you said, we're looking at pretty standard specifications, uh, HDMI input and, you know, 6,000 lumen projector, let's say. So for us going around and shopping around, you might get a deal here or there, um, but by the time you've stocked up the appropriate number of lamps and you, you know, we have an NEC service tech on staff now, um, so it makes sense for us to kind of stick with, with one brand. Is that something that you've kind of fallen fallen into, or did that develop over time? Because when 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 I came onto our campus, we had already developed that 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 relationship uh, with Epson. Actually, is, is the one we we had, and and but you you still have. I, I found both you know Sanyo's, and uh, when when it was Sanyo and um, Ben Q and a number of others that are comparable. But there are some times where you're right. You know, you you get stocked up on a certain number of lamps. And those aren't cheap. That's right. And it, it's something that we, we fell into. I, I can tell you, I don't have any particular, you know, love or attachment to those products. But I can also tell you that no Panasonic reps ever called me and said, hey, let's come in and, and find a way to, to get Panasonic at Bates College. So, you know, we're here. We, we You know, like I said, we've got the tech. We've got the, the lamp stocked up that we need. Um, anybody's listening to that that decides <laughs> – they want to come sell something. You know, we're, we're certainly always listening. Well, Matt, is this is this a a function of the size of the college or the location of the college? Bates is is a, is a small liberal arts college in in Maine. <laughs> Nothing against Maine because come, you know, come on, what are you saying? <laughs> it's, it's a gorgeous part of the country. It just happens to be in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> actually, you t- you take Scott's argument, and it, it it actually scales out even more so for you know a, a, a university like George Mason. We were when I first started here a Sharp University. Now we're an Epson University. Uh, we actually not just in projectors, but in all of our product, try to minimize the number of parts we have in play. I think you guys both know, and I've talked about this a lot in the industry. We develop and publish standards for what we do. And, you know, specifying models are very important to that. We take every new product we think about adding into our lineup through a rigorous testing and development process to make sure it's justified adding another part. Because we have to scale over 170 rooms at four different locations. And, you know, um, particularly to the Epson thing you mentioned, I think one of the more important things, not just then, you know, how Epson is very education friendly, and they are, um, it's how disruptive a price point that class of projector is coming in. Uh, we bought some of the first uh, Z series off, not this new series, but the original Z series that came over from Japan. In fact, if our rep wouldn't let us buy the first two off the boat, but we bought like units 101 and 102. <laughs> and it's a really disruptive price point because it's now playing into territory that used to only be a Barco or Christie or the real high-end, you know, Panasonic-type product. Well, and that's that's another thing about, about you know, guys who are in education. Um, I have a friend of mine who is a, an integrator in St. Louis, and, you know, I, not for nothing, but, you know, I'll say, hey, you know, here's here's what I'm looking for, for you know, for refresh or, or whatever. Uh, he's not an Epson dealer. 
and another company that I use is, and and they they have the brighter futures, which is which is Epson's you know disruptive price point into it. And he's told me flat out, he's like, you know, what? I can get you spec for spec. I just can't touch the price for what you're. He, he, I I'm buying at brighter futures prices less than what his cost is on a comparable projector. I've heard that too. We we've had a couple of our distributors who had that problem. And one of the interesting things we found is there's actually some national distributors who sell brighter futures, and because they move so much quantity, they'll actually even beat the brighter futures price points. Wow. But keep the whole warranty and the whole deal. It's just mm-hmm. they're moving quantity. Well, and this this moves us into our, our next article, which was which is about you you guys, Tim, uh, and, and Extron. And one of my first experiences in the industry was was with Extron. Uh, we, we have a lot of Extron products here. That was one of my first control systems. Um, and I, I still remember, um, I, I don't know who you guys use uh, for your education, guys. Uh, but my, my, my rep was John Gordon uh, at Extron. And I still remember him coming to our campus uh, from Anaheim and showing us, you know, Global Viewer and, and all that jazz. And right. you guys um, you guys launched another a new website for K-12. Walk me through... Your your mentality when it comes to education, uh, because this is not something that, that I'm doing just to blow smoke, but I've said this other places. I think Extron does, if not the best job, one of the best jobs, catering to education. Uh, and I want to know, you know, how you guys do it and maybe why other people don't. Well, a good question, and John Gordon's still working here for my team, and I guess it's time for him to come visit Southern Illinois. <laughs> but... Um, I didn't say it's been a long. I just said that was one of my first experience was John. So yeah, very good. Well, if you look at our our main website extron.com, if you go to the left hand side which lists the product categories, there's 37 different product categories that resellers and university folk need to partition through to find what they want. And if you look at the K12 market, it's pretty packaged. You have a pretty standardized setup on systems that we've created. And it didn't make sense for driving the K through 12 um, uh, reseller or the the school district looking for solutions into sift through streaming products, multi-image processors, video wall processors, fiber processors, you name it. So we've created the um, the new website uh, that's uh, you know it's open to the public. You don't have to be K through 12 to log into it, but it's the extronclassroom.com. I wouldn't say. K- Hater more so than I say it's it's focus. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've we've created a focus for the different levels within a K through 12 district, whether you be an administrative level or a technical level, to go in and find exactly what you need with the right amount of information to help make decisions on what you need for classroom systems in a K 12 environment. So really, it, it takes it all, all the intangibles of the larger systems out of that, and really focuses K 12 on on systems design for those applications that they're dealing with so this is this is kind of more towards you know the the the, the k through 12 guy who is, is most likely has about thirteen thousand different hats that he's wearing and this kind of helps them in, in the design process yeah i mean that's one of the you're absolutely right tim I and mean, if you deal with higher ed i know you guys matt and uh, yourself and scott you wear multiple hats but until you go to a, a k-12 and you realize that probably the most important piece of technology in K-12 is not the classroom AV systems, it's those printers and keeping the computers online and, and everything they need to do. So if you can mitigate the, the, the support and, and the finding solutions that they have to go through in a more condensed manner, we feel this focus will be value-added for the K-12 market. Okay, so, so take me through, and, and I don't, you know, don't, don't give me any trade secrets or anything, but, but take me through the thought process. I mean, you guys are, are you know, no, no different. I mean, you, you are, but you're not, than, you know, AMX or, or Crestron or um, Aurora or somebody else. And I'm not saying that to, to say that, that, that they don't do a good job, but I, I honestly think that, that you guys, and, and like we talked about with Epson, there are certain companies who, who see an inherent value in having a laser focus on what I would perceive that almost end user. Um, and I say almost end user because ultimately the end user is the professor, is the teacher in the classroom. And yes, you guys talk to them, but you also talk to us. You talk to Matt, you talk to Scott, you talk to our contemporaries. 
and you you get our feedback. One of the, one of the coolest things that, that I've ever been a part of was you know in doing a training session. It was nothing but education guys, and if I if I remember right, it was it was nothing but higher ed guys. And one of the during one of the sessions uh, out in Anaheim, your your research guys came in and just asked us questions, and that's not an experience I've had someplace else. So take me through your cultural your your the Extron culture and and why that is. Well, I think look at Matt's title, Learning Space Design Manager. You know, clearly colleges and universities are designing and implement, implementing their own audiovisual technology for their auditoriums, classrooms, learning spaces. So 10 years ago when we started the focused vertical market at education at Extron, we saw that that shift in the marketplace and a lot of it was due to, you know, the proliferation of lower cost displays. Uh, you know, and so instead of having just a few select auditoriums having presentation technology, it really proliferated to every learning space. So there was added focus internally at universities to really create standards and employ uh, technology to meet their effective needs. So we're just at Extron just fine-tuning that and, and realizing not only the K-12 market from their levels of systems, but the higher-end market through gentlemen like yourselves who are, who are in the business the business of designing and supporting your classroom. So we want to make sure you have access to training, technical information, white papers, references, and resources that our consultants and our resellers have to better make decisions on what you're using in the classroom. That shouldn't come as a big surprise. So you're playing off of what <laughs> kind of what, what the economy and what the job market has, has created almost. Well, I mean, it's not the job market per se. It's just look at a lot of the universities. The bulk of universities are, whether you're, you know, Ohio State or you're Bates College, you are having a hand in the design and support of your classrooms. And we want to make it easy for you um, to have access to information and resources to make decisions to not only design, but to support years down the road of the products from Extron that you have in your classrooms. That makes sense. Yeah, and I, you know, I, I do hope this is a, a situation where, where other other people listen to to what Tim's saying, what Extron does, because you know, you, I'm always amazed when 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 I go to Infocom or any time I'm talking with colleagues around the country, everybody I talk to knows Tim, and and yeah. not like oh I know his name, like I've met the guy, he's flown out here, he's helped me design something, um, and you know, and I think that that's a and, and actually the entire company has they're they're not uh people who who come out to education institutions in, in slick suits trying to sell them something they come out to help them you know design a product that works um at, this year at infocom i i you know had a substantial talk with Anthony, andrew edwards you know and, and it wasn't just a like 30 second Hey, what are you? What are you doing? What are you using? It was a significant discussion, and the, and the guy was really listening to what we were saying, and I think that um, the people that I know that that you know use Extron products are 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 passionate about it, and not because they've been you know sold a line, because they've they've been dealt with really well, and I think that that's something that a lot of manufacturers are, are missing. You never come out and flown and seen me. <laughs> well, hey, tell you what, why don't you? Uh, you get uh, I John. need to. Yeah, I'll, uh, I need to, but you got to come out here. We're getting ready to move into a brand new building in uh, oh, two weeks. That's right, with the with the the saloon and stuff. There, it's been open since before Christmas. Oh, yeah, geez. get your dancing boots on and your cowboy hat, and uh, we'll you know do a line <laughs> dance or two. Last last time I was I was at, at, at Extron was about two years ago actually, it was two years ago Super Bowl and you guys were 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 just now breaking ground just then breaking ground on it and and talking a lot about it so. All right, we'll we'll make a date and stuff. Um, you listen to Ed Tech as I make a date with with Tim Schnabel. Um, uh, he's on the line uh, from Extron also Scott Tyner uh, from Bates College and Matthew Silverman from George Mason. Uh, late last month. Apple had an, an announcement with education. And this is something, if you didn't read uh, the Steve Jobs biography, whether you like Apple or not, it, it's actually a good read um, for the purposes of, of seeing how the brain of somebody like Steve Jobs works. And something he, he had, had said in the book uh, to, uh, to Walter Isaacson was he wanted to be disruptive when it came to the world of 
book publishing and, and specifically scholastic books publishing. So that's what they did. They they came out last month and said, hey, here's this new platform for the iPad. And you can do cool things and you can write your own books and, and we hope everybody does it and, and, and stuff like that. And upon further review, it is a cool product and it is, it's free and, and all this other jazz. It's a little proprietary and, and I get that because, you know, Apple's a company and they, they have to make money. Um, but, you know, if you want to make interactive books, um, it, it's, a, it's a great little, little product. Uh, where, where it comes into AV is the fact that, yeah, it's made for the iPad. And where we'll go with this, Matt, uh, is from a standpoint of not just George Mason, but, but AV as a whole, the, the iPad and, and all of these iDevices are becoming increasingly more, more every year a source of, of video. So how is stuff like this going to translate? Are we going to have to be, continue to move toward a more digital, or are we going to be able to, to stay in the half-analog, half-digital world when it comes to these e-books? Oh, that, that's a loaded question on many levels. <laughs> um, I guess specifically to the iBooks announcement, I, I think it's interesting, and I'll, I'll leave it there. Uh, I'm looking right now. There are, I think, what, nine titles available or something like that? <laughs> Currently, yes. Um, and I, I, I think it's a great concept, but Steve Jobs had a lot of great concepts which never scaled. The the Apple TV comes to mind. And, oh, you just wait. And, I was going to say, I, yeah, just wait on that one, right? Well, yeah, and I've been waiting for a while. And, <laughs> and, and, and I, I think there's potential here. I really do. I, I think it's what, – what I actually saw from this being the potential is those who want to self-publish – this gives them a very dynamic way to self-publish if you're on an Apple platform. The challenge is that it only works on an Apple platform. And you look at Amazon self-publishing or uh, Barnes & Noble's or any of those, and at least they're using something which will port to multiple formats. And, you know, I I don't know. I mean, I, I think something will come from this, but I'm not sure what. Your other question, though, about what do we need to do about supporting iPads or similar devices as or even Fires, tool, you know, Amazon Fires. Yeah, and the, the, the truth is I've seen this for a while. We've actually had a couple faculty, which I've worked with, who've come up and said, I have found the best instructional app. Uh, one I want to say was physics. I said, this is the best way I can teach physics. It's bar none. It's, it's some app on the iPad. So how could I do it? And her, her desire was to walk around the classroom. I said, that's not going to happen. Yeah. Um, so where it went to is I said, okay, well, Apple restricts content over analog, so you really use, need to use a digital dongle. We at this point have, I think, it's 87 classrooms that support digital. So I said, well, tell the registrar you need a digital classroom. They know this, and they'll get you in the right one. And we can support you. You just will be tethered to the desk. Not the greatest solution, but it was acceptable. I think the real challenge we have as an industry is, unfortunately, the pro side of the market is seeming to be slow to develop wireless technologies. I mean, there's a couple of stuff floating around on the consumer side, like the Apple TV and an iPad, except the problem with that is you have to be on the same subnet and in an enterprise wireless solution, that's just never going to happen. No, it's not. So, I, I, yeah, this one hurts me. And this is actually one of the things that keeps me up at night, so to speak, in our industry is I really want to support our faculty with their iPads and their Android tablets. And, you know, come this fall, their Microsoft tablets. And there are wireless digital solutions. But so far, I haven't ever seen one which is pro-quality. So. Well, and the other issue is also not just pro quality, but also handling stuff like security and handling you know the whole HDCP issues mm-hmm. that may or may not happen. I mean, you you don't know when you download an app whether or not they have content protection on it, and you're not going to know until you it's plug Apple, in. Assume they do. Yeah. Do whatever. <laughs> I would say if, if it's an Apple product, assume they have content protection. Yeah. One of the things we found is Apple flips on the HECP key whether it's required or not. 
So that's that's just something we found in practice. Gotta love them. Jeez. <laughs> Uh, Scott, is this something that that you guys have to worry about? Whether it's, you know, I mean, are there are there security issues with this because it's you know it's a variable. I mean, you don't know where you don't know where this iPad has been. Yeah, or you know, I, I think that um, I think the biggest issue is is kind of what Matt was saying, which is more like you don't know where this iPad or these apps are going. And so I, I look at this announcement about iBooks, and I I think it's interesting. I think like Matt said it. It's it's not really you know earth shattering uh, as you would expect something maybe from Steve Jobs t- to really kind of be a, a game changer. It's it's not that yet. But for example, I can see this iBooks app being a substitute for more course packets and more. So you know a professor could put you know everything they'd normally put in a, in, in a course packet into this iBooks. They could put video and audio into this iBooks and so that now they can deliver these right to students iBooks and because it's Apple you're assuming there's you know I'm assuming that they will put into it um, protection so that you yeah. can't show it if you're not supposed to you can't share it if you're not supposed to so I think the future of this is pretty is pretty exciting and I think the, the answer to does it need to be digital is is yeah absolutely Tim, I'm going to put you a little bit on the spot here, and and you can you can you can push back if you'd like, um, because it's a, th- a question I just thought of. Is this something as a manufacturer? Are, are these devices something that you guys need to worry about, or is it more you guys need to make sure that we have every conceivable digital connection and let the end user worry about you know connecting to it? No, I, I would I would say bring them on. Not only displays, but source equipment, because with the variation of those sources of displays and sources, um, it provides manufacturers like Extron and others an opportunity to create products to support the market. Uh, you know, the iPad is being pro- proliferated everywhere in education. My, you know, second grader uses, um, you know, iTouches in the classroom from learning, and my. Um, fifth grader next year entering sixth grade it's mandatory she's going to get an ipad 3 for her birthday and she doesn't know it yet wow. so <laughs> the point being the point being is it's here to stay and it's only going to grow so as a manufacturer we need to you know find out what they're using bring them in and test them make sure we have eated tables captured um, you know any anything that has to be tested from the video signal is tested and incorporate into the products to allow it to work when faculty or students decide to plug into those classrooms. So that means you guys have to almost purchase every conceivable tablet out there and test it. We we have a lot and you know if we don't you know oftentimes a customer will send one in and and uh let us run it through the ringers to to do testing but that that kind of comes with the uh the territory of making sure we're testing with various displays. If you walked over to engineering or product development, you see everybody with a computer, but you'll see a lot of different devices that we need to interface, control, and or deal with video signals with on various desks for testing. Interesting. Uh, This past month, uh, Infocom and Cedia come together every year in Amsterdam. They call it ISC. uh, Infocom was was, uh, promoting the step rating system there. Uh, this is kind of something new for them over the last couple of years where it's it's infocom's not i'm not gonna say the version but it's it's their way to get into the whole the whole green thing um it, you guys do a lot of of design and tim you do a lot of of help with with guys like us when we're we're trying to design our, our own systems um actually we'll, we'll start with you tim is is this something where we as not just an industry uh, because it's Infocom, but also as as education guys, we need we it, it would benefit us to start putting this into the planning of our projects, but the whole step thing. Well, you know, I don't know if Infocom really set standards. I mean, they're a very good organization for you know networking, collaboration, and training and education that type of thing. Um, you know, obviously, being energy conscious in your designs is paramount uh, because, you know, obviously, adding electronics to a certain degree is going to 
you know, raise consumption of electricity and heat and all those nasty things we're trying to avoid. Um, you know, so I, I really can't comment on the effectiveness of STEP, but I think what they're trying to accomplish is a good thing for people to set design standards too. Whether it will become a standard, um, I, I, I think the jury is out there on that. Well, let me just quickly jump in. It, it's, they're not actually presenting this as a standard. Uh, this no, it's is a system. A, it's a whole new it's, system. It's, it's, it's a system or a best practice program, which is different from the standards group, which, which I actually work with, uh, which is more focused on things like uh, the uh, audio uh, uniformity standard, the first one that came out, the uh, projected image contrast ratio standard. So those are standards. This is more of a best practice and program. Okay, so hang on. Real quick. I'm sorry, Matt. Real quick. I, I, I saw this as this whole step program as the AV version of LEED. Is that not correct? It's complementary to LEED, as okay. I understand it. Um, LEED, and I, I am not an expert by far to speak on is actually the, the right person to talk about this would be Scott Walker, who's been living and breathing this for the past five, seven years. Um, th- th- this is meant to be, I guess, a way for audiovisual to recognize efficiency and, env- and environmental consciousness in our design work. And what happened is we submitted, uh, we as an industry submitted some comments to lead to be incorporated into the next version, which we didn't get added to the program. So in order to get into the lead area, which deals with innovation credits, this I think was a way to start thinking about that. And again, I'm really pulling some of this out of thin air based on a couple of conversations I've had. Well, I'm, so, I'm pulling it out of thin air based on the on the three or four articles I've read, so we're yeah. on the same boat. So, okay, so, so, so let's say that let, – let goes back to the question I, I asked Tim. Is this something we should worry about, though? Is this something – you know what? You're planning you're, – you're in the, the, the first stages of your, your first initial meetings with the architect and your administration. Is this something you should bring up then, uh, or should we wait until, until step has kind of matured some? I think you've got to wait to see what comes out of it um, and kind of stick to the, you know, the energy star, the lead standards that are kind of adopted right now with those architects. I kind of like this, like I said, see how this, this parlays, but I would definitely be watching it, uh, maybe a, attending some sessions, webinars or Infocom sessions on that to see where things go. So this is not something we we can go into into the administration and say we can get you you know five hundred lead credits just by doing this. By, no, by following step. But I, I absolutely agree with Tim about this is a little bit of a wait and see because I don't think they've even hit version one of the system yet. It's still in piloting and testing. Um, there are some. There is an energy management standard, an ANSI standard under development by Infocom, which will speak more to specific outcomes. But really, I think at this point, this is something which would align with your organization or your institution on how aggressive you want to be on green. Mm-hmm. Uh, George Mason is very aggressive on doing green environmentals in certain areas. We've provided some data and monitoring, but we're not necessarily a low-hanging fruit because we're already using Energy Star products, efficient amplifiers, uh, turning our projectors off, and things like that. So I, I know, at least for George Mason, they're really trying to go after, I guess, bigger targets which will yield more sta- savings with the expectation we just pay attention and acknowledge environmental consciousness in our systems designs. That makes sense. So this is something we need to – and, and you are, guys are both right. We need to pay attention to it more and take – whether it's the webinar or if they uh, if they offer some classes uh, in, in Vegas this year at Infocom. So – um, a couple of years ago, uh, there was a, a tragedy in um, in Delaware at a nightclub, and since then, there's been this push for emergency notification uh, around there, and that that coupled with um, the number of school shootings we've had over the past ten years, whether that's been at high schools or, or colleges. Uh, th- this past month, uh, AMX released their version of emergency notification. It's called Rescue 
uh, RESQ uh, system. They, they say it's for K-12, but you could probably do it in, in a smaller college. Um, first question, actually, is, is to you, Scott. Is this something from a legislative standpoint in Maine that you have to, to worry about? And, and is this something that we as AV professionals, is this is this our wheelhouse? Is this is this our is this our responsibility? Not to say not to push it off on somebody else, but the bigger question is, who really should worry about about emergency notification? Uh, so, legislatively, it's nothing that that we've heard of yet in Maine. Uh, you know, I can speak to what we're, what we're, what we're doing here at Bates, and that is, um, you know, we have obviously digital signs that we put up around campus, and we've tied those in with our security office so that they can um, post warnings on there. Uh, I would, I think it needs to be led by the security office. I think that they're the experts in it, and certainly if they come in and ask us to do something, or if I pass this along and they're interested in it, um, I know one of the things that we've had you know worked through with our security office it's slightly different is with stolen projectors and we've tried to put in some programming that notifies them of stolen projectors um the problem is after three false calls they're not coming anymore when they get a call about a stolen projector and that can't happen with something you know that's an emergency in a classroom they have to know that it is for real and they have to respond. So it has to be a system which is, is really going to work, especially it's something the size of a college where, you know, a small elementary school or something, you could, you know, look down a hall and see what's going on if somebody presses a button. Here, you know, you've or even George Mason, you know, I'd imagine it's worse. You've got to get in a car and really travel. Yeah. So I'm I'm happy and excited to tie it into, you know, projectors in classrooms, you know, lighting systems or shades in classrooms, if there's a problem and you want to bring those down, I think those are some places we can look at it and we can share with our security offices um, what we're capable of doing. But certainly for me, I pass this along to our, our security office and say, you know, if you're interested in talking about it more, let me know. So it's, it's where you're, you're basically giving the, the security guys uh, an in into your system to control it, but it's, it's really it, it kind of on them. Yeah, and I, exactly. And I will also point out that we talked last time about the Technology Managers Conference, which is going on at Infocom this year mm-hmm. on Super Tuesday. We have a speaker coming to that um, from Virginia Tech, who oh, is wow. uh, the, yeah, who's the manager of the emergency um, response systems over there. Very cool, uh, Matt. At, at George Mason, who's uh, who's who's responsibility does, does this lie under? We actually have an emergency uh, preparedness department where wow. this would lie. And really, we I, I'm pretty much ditto to Scott. We look to enable them. So anything we can help them do their job, it, it's something as we matured as a university, we've realized we, we don't own this. But if we can help them, fantastic. But it, it, it's something you really need emergency management professionals to be running point on. Tim, you guys have a number of different products that that can facilitate this. But as you talk to different guys like us uh, around the country, is this something that is in their wheelhouse, or like the three of us, we just kind of facilitate the security guys uh, and give them ins into our system if they happen to want to lower the shades and turn on the projector and, and project a, a emergency ne- a message? Well, I think there's there's two schools of thought on that. Um, obviously, it's a, a emergency or life safety or campus security issue. Um, but one of the things we did back in summer of 2006 is long prior to Virginia Tech incident, things of that nature, uh, we started shipping the MediaLink 226IP controllers with built-in audio codecs and line-level audio out. So you could, through that network jack that you're plugging in to monitor and control your, your classroom AV system, is send an emergency um, announcement down that same network drop that you're leveraging to speakers in the room. And you could even parlay that with an intercom panel to allow for two-way communication. So we don't market that as a life safety uh, item, um, but we do provide it as a solution in our product line because many of you or campuses have some type of emergency notification system and they're usually grouped. You might have an a, a, a t- emergency text system. You might have various systems employed. Oh, and by the way, if you could leverage that investment you made with your AV system to provide some functionality of that, 
then that's a good thing, regardless of which manufacturer you're, you're buying your equipment from. Makes sense. That makes a whole lot of sense. Uh, we we have actually a, a team of people here that is it lies under the the um, the operations managers people, and and just like you you guys, uh, we give them ends. Uh, we give them ends uh, through various uh, protocols and, and control protocols, but it it does kind of lay on on their responsibility, and and we we rely on them to let us know what's going on through the security office and stuff like that. So. Uh, right. And one more quick point mm-hmm. is when we when we're talking to universities and colleges about that, uh, doing demonstrations and things of that, campus security and that side of it is always present, looking at uh, loopholes and bombarding it just to make sure it passes their muster. Yeah, you don't want some some kid hacking a system just so he can get out of a test or something. So that would be bad. Uh, Wolf Vision, which which I think it, it, they make a, a pretty decent product, but they came out with something that uh, is interesting. Um, it's a it's a three D visualizer, and uh, for all intents and purposes, it's a it's a three D dot cam. Um, I don't know that we've talked about three D on on this show with with you guys. Uh, we're going to do that now, and. I, I will not pull any punches. I have no use for 3D. Very few uses, I guess I should say. Um, and, and when it comes to a dot cam or a visualizer, you know, it's 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 neat. It's neat that the technology that they, they've done, that they've done. I'm just not 100 percent sure. 3D in the classroom, I guess, is is where I'm going with this. Um, Matt, how do you come down on the world of of 3D? Uh, when it comes to being inside the classroom or, you know, for your digital signage throughout the campus? Um, yeah, I, I'm not a big fan of 3D. Um, it's actually funny on this product. I saw the first generation of it at Infocom last year. Had a great walkthrough. We're, we're, we use a lot of Wolf Vision products. I was walking through the Wolf Vision booth with uh, one of their reps, and she really wanted to show this to me and looked at it. It, it was awesome. I, I mean, as a, as a, just as technology, this this is fantastic. And then she asked me, "So yeah, do you have any use for this?" I said, "I can't think of a single one." <laughs> and said, "Yeah, they, they they were struggling on that as well." Um, it, it you know, three D is a technology. I, I got to ask, where's the content and where's the purpose? I mean, if you're going to do a visualization lab and you have purpose built content, three D could be fantastic. But in your average classroom. I, I just have a hard time seeing content or even value in going 3D versus 2D. Yeah, and I guess that's that's where I where I'm I'm with this. Um, Scott, where do you? I mean, are you a big a big 3D guy, or, or do you, do you I, see? I'm not. I mean, I'm not a big 3D guy, but I'm also not uh, a, a hater of it. I'm I'm somebody who's <laughs> and I know that there's a lot I'm of haters. Oh, come on. No, 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 no. You're either with us or you're <laughs> I'm kind of still uh, on, on the fence on this one. You know, um, I'll tell you the, the article that, that um, Roger Ebert sent, that um, Roger Ebert had there, I think really made me start to wonder, I mean, is this, is this something that's simply not possible because our, our brains aren't uh, ready for this yet? Um, you know, I've always thought 3D in a classroom could have some potential, um, particularly for, you know, science uh, and some of the things we might look at in science. I, I'm not sure how a document camera uh, putting out 3D is, is going to do very much. Um, so for me, I'm I'm still waiting for some some scientific stuff that really you know matters in 3D, um, but the document camera just didn't really like you know like Matt said what you know give me an example of something that would really the need benefit. to be in 3D. Yeah. Tim, you guys don't have anything that supports 3D, do you? Well, sure, the switchers and signal processors and things oh, that transmit signals no. have to support that signal. No, but, uh, what do you mean? You shouldn't. <laughs> Get away from it. Well, it's 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 a part of the feature set through the HDMI standard. Oh, there right? we go. Okay, so okay, All right, that's you that's know. So cool. if you want to be compliant, we can't, really can't talk about one point three or one point four in that. We've got to kind of list the features. But three D support yeah. is is a feature set that we have to list. But you know, three you know, D in the classroom, I think it's a, a niche market. Medical GIS, you know, virtual reality, that type of thing, and. You know, it is, a, like I said, a niche market, and kudos for, for Wolf Vision, because you're, in order to see and your display in 3D, you need your source content in 3D. 
So if you've got uh, you know a 3D document camera that's going to render that in those that orientation, I think they've they've hit the mark for a product in a, in a limited market. Yeah. So Tim, have you being out dealing with other schools? Have you seen schools using it yet? It's it's not widespread by no stretch of the imagination. I think last year some of the you know budget-oriented video projectors were trying to push that down in the K-12, and you know we were looking at that, and that just really never really took off. Like I think the article um, you know that you're referencing from uh, you know the the on the on the 3D that you just referenced is is a good point. I, I visited a 3D home theater store about a month ago when traveling. I had about an hour to kill. I wanted to see what it was all about. And, you know, you could only handle a few few minutes before you get nauseous. And, you know, learning's tough enough in terms of keeping your attention and, and focusing on the matter. If you have to deal with what 3D is throwing at you, you're just, you're asking for trouble potentially. Mm. And I guess that's that's my whole thing is because, first of all, this stuff's not, not cheap. And... If it's going, if I'm going to invest the, the the time and the energy and the money into it, it's going to have to have an awful lot of return, um, and either be pretty quick on the return or um, be get you know give me the longevity. And I still don't see you know all kidding aside, I still don't see you know 3D being that that adopted adopted that quickly when it comes to to education. So that's just me. Um, one of our one of our panelists, uh, Mr. Matthew Silverman, has a a blog. It's called nextedutech.com. and uh, this month's uh, this month's uh, post was about uh, getting the most out of support tools and, and AV tools. And uh, Matt, we're going to have to have you go through that and kind of talk about you know remote support. And you know you've got a large installation, whether it's you know you're you're much bigger than than we are here. You know, we're a small community college in, in southwest Illinois. Um, but still, getting it to where, you know, whether it's 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 Crestron's room view or, or Extron's global viewer or I don't even know what uh, uh, AMX's is called. But the ability to remotely support these rooms because, you know what, you're not right next door to all of them. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's been a real challenge for us. Um, we first started getting into a network support environment uh, around 2003, and we started putting our first systems on the network. And uh, frankly, we weren't doing much with it then. And, and kind of this article talks about how we progressed. And we, we started out with the typical thing I think everyone starts out with, which is emulating your touch panel or your button panel. And a couple of years ago, we hired a new programmer who, fantastic, fantastic guy, and he came with great ideas about stuff he had done with some other institutions about providing our techs with more at their fingertips. And what we found is we actually started building uh, our support panels, which are really custom designed to our, for our staff both to emulate the faculty experience, but also to give them rich diagnostics, particularly as we move into digital. So if they're troubleshooting uh, a, an issue over the phone, our goal would be to um, support them, you know, and close the call out without ever having to send someone to their classroom. Hmm. And we operate in a real-time support model, so this is really important. Plus, we're a distributed environment. We have uh, three campuses in one site where while we have local support at each location, it's still a real challenge because we have multiple buildings at each location. Yeah. So, so really what we've tried to do is provide almost an IT-like environment. Actually, some of my original thoughts on this were, you know, what I had seen demonstrations of things like HP OpenView and similar type of products where really our goal is, you know, within 15 seconds of picking up a phone, can we open up, a, a room-specific tool, and can we see what the faculty is seeing so we can best support them? Scott, is this something you have you gone down this this pathway yet of, of remote access and remote support? Uh, I, I used to think that that we we did a really good job, and I um, often bragged about it. And then I saw Matt's webinar, and thank you, Matt, for giving me lots of work to do over the next few months. Uh, <laughs> 
and I, I think you know everything that Matt that Matt said is true. One of the things that we have done really well, and that we've done it on the analog side, and and like I said, I'm spending the next few months now after seeing what he did, um, working on this on the digital side, is um, is the preventive maintenance parts. So we we're doing programming. We're thinking about things. He, well, let me stop there first and tell you why. We had a situation a, a week or so ago where somebody called from presentation room because uh, something wasn't working, and you get there and the computer was just dead. It was just dead, and hard drive dead. Things happen, right? And you know, we've got seventy, eighty rooms on campus, and, and the guy looks at me and goes, "Well, don't you look at these every day?" <laughs> and, and I was like, "No, no. actually, we 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 don't." Um, so you know, w- but we do programming so that we can. Um, with our network guys, get that computer turned on at a certain time. And if a current sensor doesn't see it come on, there's some problem going on there. Um, and so we do this kind of stuff. And, and as I look at what Matt has talked about, you know, are there more places to do this preventive maintenance all electronically so that we don't have to go and touch these rooms? Yeah. Uh, Tim, one, one of my first um, instant in, uh, experiences in, in AV was uh, dealing with um, some of the uh, touch panels, both from Crestron and from you guys. And I, I remember actually talking to you at Infocom, good Lord, 06 or 07, about computer emulation and this very subject. Um, walk me through kind of how you've seen this progress from probably 10 years ago, if not longer on this, when it comes to remote access uh, for people. Um, for guys like us who are able just to, like Matt said, pick up the phone and hopefully within about 30 seconds, um, you know, get the problem at least diagnosed. You, you, are you referring to, you know, networking the rooms and, and, yeah. and seeing things and remotely looking at it through, through, through global viewer and, and, you know, seeing or, it. or room view or, or RMS or whatever you're yeah. using. I, yeah, I think it's paramount. We've with our enterprise version, or we call it global viewer enterprise. We've got, over 200 universities in the U.S. and Canada are running the server-based application, and and some use it more than others. Some you go visit them, and they have a uh, a help desk, uh, kind of a, a lobby war room with a big flat panel up on up there, and they're monitoring this stuff, you know, during the day all the time. Um, others, as is, 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 you know. Scott Maya mentioned is he may not look at it that much. I think it just depends on the, the nature of your support operation, how many rooms you're using, and you know how complex or not complex the rooms may be, or how trained or not trained the faculty may be. But I, I don't think any of the manufacturers say you're, you're never going to have to visit the room. But remember back in the day before you did that, and you had an issue in the room, you had to go through with a, with a punch list and yeah. work from point A to point Z. Well, I think putting the rooms in the network and assessing what could be going on if you could not control or change that remotely at least you'd walk into that room at a at a, a class change with only a few minutes and be able to you know start on your punch list at point P and walk out at, at V and, and hopefully have that issue resolved hopefully <laughs> ideally yes exactly oh. One thing I, I, I do want to add on there, and something I, I've really liked as I've seen Global Viewer develop, and I wish some other manufacturers would see this as well, is moving into the IT enterprise mindset and really thinking about reporting, thinking about whole just a whole support concept. Because I, I know where I would like to go with this at some point is have a, a single interface per room for our staff where we also are pulling in like our schedule from our enterprise scheduling system and where we can really start doing you know some interchange with other IT systems to give them you know give our staff a AV dashboard if you will hmm. no that would be yeah you're right because if is the closer we can get to that, the the faster you can train your guys, the faster that they can they can start you know servicing calls and stuff. So, um, something we're, we're going to kind of delve into is, is an evergreen topic of sorts, um, and that's how you get your administration not to appreciate you, but <laughs> that's, that would be nice. But um, but to explain to them uh, the value of audiovisual and and the value of maybe even your department because at times you know what that's important because sometimes hmm. budget meetings happen and hey you know what sometimes you got to fight for your, you got to fight for your meat so um Scott how do you I mean how do you keep 
not necessarily keep in front of of administration, but how do you? I mean, how, how do you uh, sell them on on the uh, the benefits of AV? Yeah, I've actually been. Um, yeah, I can answer that one word, and, and it's data. And I've been um, a, a big supporter and, and pusher of this for a long time, which is that um, a lot of us in, in the AV industry. Um, focus simply on getting this thing fixed right now, maybe doing it as quick as we can, and then not really talking about the fact um, that there are problems. And so what I've, what I've started doing is, is tracking every single usage in a room. So if somebody goes to my C- CIO and says, you know, three times during a semester I had a problem in a classroom, and I, and I can say – that's, that's true. It did happen. We've got them logged right here. We can tell you exactly what they were. But let's put into perspective that that was out of 400 times that classroom was used that semester. Wow. Or, you know, and, and, and you know, we know that our, you know, we have over 10,000 AV uses a year. And so if we start looking at problem calls and we get 100 a semester, you know, all of a sudden you're getting a perspective that that's, you know, like a 98% success rate or something. So I think it's really being clear with your administrators, not hiding problems. It's technology like everything else. Things are going to break. Things are going to die. There's going to be bugs in the system. And you've got to be really clear about that, really honest about it. Um, but also toot your own horn sometimes and talk about the successes that you have. You know, I don't think it's that hard to sell people on the importance of AV. Everybody's used it probably in one way or another. They've had something go wrong with it. Um, and so that if you can show them how the money you're spending and the staff that you're putting in um, is, is supporting it and making it reliable, you know, usually to, I found, and I'm, I'm lucky, we've got a small environment. You know, I, I see the president of the college around campus and, you know, say hi and we know each other by name. So it, yeah. it it's it's certainly not an environment that you know other people are in. Matt, how do you uh, how do you sell the guys at George Mason on uh, on the benefits of AV? It, it, it's it's been a changing message over the years. Uh, right now, and if you listen to the name of our department, Learning Space Design, we're really have moved into a more of an enabling model where we're trying to tie what we do into instruction and supporting instruction. Um, I think one of the challenges for the industry right now is a lot of what we do has moved into a utility IT role, like email. It's taken for granted that the projector will work every time. And the thought and the design that went behind the system doesn't always get acknowledged to the same level as other IT systems or projects. And I, I, I think it's going to be a great challenge for us as an industry over the next couple of years to try to move the narrative a bit because we're starting to use the same fundamental technologies that the rest of IT does. I mean, I know we've, we, we've talked as an industry over the years, are we AV, are we IT? My feeling at this point is IT ate us about a year ago, um, and we're just a type of IT like networking. Yeah. And we had a lot of value. I mean, the difference between a good projected image and a poor projected image, we've all been there. Or the difference between proper audio and what you often see is huge. But somehow, at least I've seen at times, we don't get equated to the same level as the guys who do the servers or what I think is the flavor of the year, cloud computing. And... It's trying to find a way for us to promote our narrative and everything that's involved with what we do at the same level as some of those other services. Yeah. Tim, is this something not not just you as the as the manufacturer guy, but you because you you talk to a lot of, of guys like us? Um, is this something where the industry maybe can be helpful, like Infocom or or, or you know, well, Infocom can be helpful in in helping us. You know, kind of, you know, like, like Scott said, to our own horn sometimes. Well, absolutely. Guys and gals. I just spoke to a director at a college system in Texas just before this podcast. And I got her passes to a TCEA show in, in Texas, which is K-12. And I said, how would you like the show? Why do you go to a K-12 show? And she kind of tongue-in-cheek said, well, in K-12, they have more technology than we have here at the community college. Wow. So I need to go learn what they're doing so I could brace for that. 
But, you know, seriously, I think in higher ed community colleges, large institutions, small privates, whatever, I think there's such a proliferation of residential digital signage and what people's kids are using for technology that, you know, going back to driver's ed back in the, the 80s when you said, okay, is, is driving a privilege or a right? The question you have to ask yourself in higher ed is, is technology a privilege or a right? And I think a lot of students coming in expect that as a right. Yeah. So I, th I think what administrators need to think about is not whether they're going to do it, is you know, how do we do it in a standards-based format in a smart way that lowers our overall cost of ownership because we're going to have to do it. You are right. He is Tim Schnabel. Uh, you've been listening to, to EdTech. Um, that's the last story we've got. We're going to finish up by talking about uh, something that Matthew and Tim are actually going to do together next month. Uh, it is the CCUMC Professional Development Committee uh, webinar. Um, it is on just the 21st of March, and you guys are going to be talking about digital conversion, classroom digital conversion. Uh, actually, Tim, we'll start with you. What uh, what exactly should people expect from this, and uh, and, and from from your standpoint, I guess. Well, yeah. Um, thanks for bringing it up. It is 12 p.m. Eastern time. A 90 minute webinar with Matt Mai. It's going to be moderated by Jeff Donahue, who's uh, uh, was a former director, now retired at Binghamton University in New York. So it's going to be a, a a good collaboration between the the three of us and things to look for in terms of making decisions when you're looking to make that leap into the digital world, you know, things to, uh, you know, look not to do, um, and just kind of get into the beaten potatoes of, um, the digital side of the business. And Matt, what, uh, what exactly, um, what should people expect from, from your side of it? Uh, what I'm going to be talking about is actually the process George Mason went through, uh, actually starting in 2009, to start analyzing and developing our digital standards and trying to figure out how we were going to tackle this problem. So really kind of the business process side of how, you know, how a university can look at uh, engaging the digital, the digital convergence issue. All right, and that is the CCUMC uh, is on the 21st of, of March at noon Eastern uh, from, one, I'm sorry, from noon until 1.30 to 90 minutes, and we'll put a link on it. On, on the show notes here. So uh, check that out if you would. Uh, Scott Tyner has been here. He is the Assistant Director of User Services at User Services at Bates College. Thank you, sir. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. Uh, Matthew Silverman, the Project Manager of Learning Space Design at George Mason University. Thanks for having me. And uh, last but not least, Tim Schnabel, uh, the Director of Education Programs at External and Electronics. Thank you so much, Tim. You said it in my last name right. Thanks, hey, you know Tim. What? Pre appreciate, appreciate you having me on and appreciate all your continued support. Thank only, you. Only takes me four or five or six or seven years. So, uh, My name is Tim Albright. Uh, check this website out and check this this podcast out uh, on, on Rave Pubs. It's ravepubs.com forward slash avnation. Ravepubs.com forward slash avnation uh, where you can find this podcast and others. Uh, thanks so much for listening. This has been EdTech. 